Miracles do happen. It's going to be 60 today. You're going to walk outside and you're going to think you live in Florida. California, you're not going to know where you are. Jesus Christ is amazing. Uh, possessing uh, all the power and glory of deity, he took on humanity. Full-on deity, full-on humanity. That means there is no one, never been anyone like Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ created all things, and he controls all things, all time, all space, all energy, all uh, light. Jesus Christ monitors every particle of matter in every corner of the universe. Jesus works on thousands of different levels at the same time. And his scientific sophistication is unfathomable. Jesus said, do you really know everything? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, you have 18.755 billion trillion air molecules in your lungs right now. And speaking of air, the air in your left rear tire is a little low. I see everything. I know everything about you and about everyone. Jesus can hear, comprehend, and respond to each of the millions of prayers uh, going on by Christians all around the world at the exact same moment. And Jesus can sympathize with each person individually, even though some are rejoicing and some are brokenhearted. Yet the rest of the biblical story is this cosmic king, Jesus, took on human flesh and became a man. And when we come to our series on the Gospel of Mark, we're about halfway through the Gospel now, and Jesus is about two-thirds of the way through his ministry, and now for the first time he is announcing that the Son of Man will be rejected, betrayed, killed, and raised from the dead. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up in verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now the disciples could hardly understand Jesus' claims of deity, how God could become a man. But now Jesus is downloading that as deity, he will die. And the disciples' circuits are totally fried. What? And all their aspirations of a ruling, conquering, uh, reigning political Messiah have vaporized. Jesus has said, they will kill me. So not surprisingly, we read in the next verse, verse 32, but they did not, they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. When we're confused, we're fearful. When we're misinformed, we're fearful. 
The one follows the other. Now Jesus, knowing the disciples' confusion, also begins to reframe not just what he's up to, but what the disciples must be and look like as followers of a suffering Savior. What does it look like to follow a suffering Savior? And so in our section today, that begins in verse 33, the very first subject Jesus takes on as he begins this reframing, this reorienting, this re-architecting of the disciples' thinking is the subject of greatness. And now greatness is the desire to be first. Jesus will describe it that way. It's the desire for fame and glory. We all know that. And what Jesus says here about greatness is just flat amazing. So let's read beginning in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, they asked him, what were you arguing about on the road? But they, that is the disciples, kept quiet because on their way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, we read this and we think, You know, these disciples were really stupid. I mean, they're arguing about who's the greatest. I, I want to suggest to you, this wasn't a stupid argument. This isn't like a, a group of jockeys arguing about who's the tallest. Because Jesus is obviously great. And everything Jesus does is great. And, and so greatness is in the air. The disciples are, are, are breathing. And furthermore, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples. He instructs them. I mean, greatness was a big deal in this socially conscious first century Israeli world. And it's a big deal 2,000 years later in ours. It's a, it's a big deal in every culture. Now, as others point out, when it comes to a subject like this, a subject of greatness or what our culture gives us on this subject, there are three different ways we can look at it. We can embrace it. Uh, we can accept the cultural norms or concepts of, of greatness. We can reject it or we can redeem it. We can rescue it. Now, so, for example, our, our culture tells us uh, to stop at red lights. Our culture tells us to go see a doctor. Our culture tells us to watch what you eat. Uh, th th those are good things, and so we embrace that, those aspects of our culture. But our culture also says things like sex outside of marriage is, is, is just fine. Gambling is okay. Uh, pornography, freedom of speech, fine. And as followers of Christ, we must reject that not embrace that and then there are other things like love or sexuality or marriage or the family that we as followers of christ must redeem must rescue must reframe here i say all that because i want you to understand jesus does not embrace the world's concept of greatness he doesn't say, man, you guys are on to something and I can solve this. Peter is the greatest. 
You see, the world tells us a greatness is, is all about being famous, being known, being honored, being uh, catered to, being exceptional. Uh, Jesus defines it as being first. Today we talk about it in terms of being a celebrity, a, a celebrity athlete or, or musician or, or actor. And the disciples here have bought into this view and their arguing reflects that. But frankly, this concept of greatness is nothing but narcissism. In every culture, that's the case. What is narcissism? Narcissism is thinking life revolves around me. All the arrows point toward me. We have been made in the image of God to reflect the character of God and to live for the glory of God. But narcissists live for the glory of themselves. And it doesn't work. Celebrities usually aren't healthy people, okay? Generally speaking. I mean, Rhonda and I know fairly well a woman that used to date Elvis. Elvis was not a healthy person. Uh, this concept destroys. As a matter of fact, if we go all the way back, it's the first lie in the book of, of Genesis that we can be like God, we can be great, we can be autonomous, just like God. And this fallen version of greatness that leaks out into culture after culture is rooted in Eden. And it's narcissism. And it will kill you. So Jesus doesn't embrace it. But what I want you to understand, nor does Jesus reject it. He doesn't, again, he doesn't rebuke the disciples. He instructs, he teaches them. And so today, let me just talk about it in terms of our culture. Rejecting greatness tends to follow the line of thinking, well, you know, everybody around me is messed up. Everybody around me is materialistic. They're so self-absorbed. Uh, they just work way too hard, and, and, and uh, I see this. And, and so then you begin to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and pretty soon you, you have a group of people, a population segment, that, that reject hard work, reject achievement, reject ambition, reject a challenging career, and become anti-business, anti-work, anti-establishment, lazy. And all in the false name of humility. I was in an airport earlier this week, flying back. You know what, and I'm really glad the pilot didn't come on and say, hey, I just want everybody to know, welcome to such and such airline. I just want everybody to know that I blew off most of my classes in school and I've blown off most of my training as a pilot. As a matter of fact, I spent the last couple of years just hanging out uh, around the pool, and I, I'm really lazy. Man, am I glad he didn't say that. And parents, you don't want your kids to have teachers like that. And you won't go to doctors like that. Hey, hey, Rob, I'd really be glad to do your eye surgery, but you know, I didn't take my training very seriously, but I'm nice. Nah, I don't think so. Man, I want a pilot. I, I want teachers. I, I want doctors who want to be great pilots, great teachers, great doctors who want to be first. Not narcissists, but competent. 
So Jesus doesn't embrace this concept, but Jesus doesn't reject it. Here, instead, what he does is he redeems it, he reframes it, he rescues it, and he tells us that greatness isn't status, it's service. Look at verse 35. Note how strong the language in verse 35 is. Jesus doesn't say in verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, he must be among the last, or a servant of a few. He says he must be the very last and the servant of Help me. Now, that was pretty pathetic. Help me. All, all, all kinds, all types, all varieties, all slices. We are saved, Jesus is saying, to serve. Jesus died to make us secure, secure in his love, secure in his grace, secure in our future, secure in every single circumstance in life so that we might spend our lives serving all saved to serve now to help the disciples get this jesus uses an illustration in verses 36 and 37 and he grabs a child now think about this when jesus wants to teach the disciples about greatness kingdom greatness biblical greatness he hugs the child That's amazing because in the first century world, children had no status in a way that was inhumane and wrong. And in hugging this child, Jesus says, my followers are there, are those who throw their arms around, who wrap their arms around all people, including the less and the least, including the disadvantaged and the disregarded and the disabled. Including those who can't do anything for you, those that the world overlooks. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is something we need to keep in mind. And let me say it this way heaven is not a country club, okay? And Jesus is saying the church dare not be either. Jesus does not hug the emperor. He hugs a child. Jesus doesn't give a rip about status. Greatness isn't status, it's service. Now being a a servant doesn't mean uh, you're inferior. It doesn't mean you give up your abilities. It doesn't mean you take a low-paying job or, or sell all your stuff. That's not what Jesus is getting at. It has everything to do with the disposition of your life and your other centered. You invest in others. And you seek the highest good of the people around you, especially the overlooked Now look at verse 37. Notice in verse 37, Jesus repeatedly uses this word welcome. Welcome means to receive or to accept. And it's a word that is often used to refer to hospitality in the elaborate, extensive Middle Eastern sense of hospitality. It means to serve, to honor. This week here at Wheaton Bible Church, we had an ordination council for a a, a young man in our church to be ordained for ministry. And it was just a great time. And on the front end, when 
we asked him to talk about what he's about in life or what are his passions, he said, you know, uh, what I want to do with my life is I want to love God. I want to serve Jesus in whatever way he calls me to serve. I want to love my uh, wife and, and my kids. And then he added, I want to live a life of hospitality. A life of hospitality. He was, an array, he was raised in a home here in Wheaton Bible Church that over the years has taken in all sorts of foster kids, adopted all sorts of kids, and he has seen up close and personal hospitality lived out. And one of the driving forces in his life is he wants to live a life of hospitality. That's Jesus' point here. Welcome, 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 welcome. Be involved. Give yourselves to other people. And frankly, it's what makes foster care and adoption so beautiful, ministry to refugees so beautiful. It's why we want to be a welcoming church. It's why uh, Wendy talked about this in, in the announcements. Oh, you're new to the church. Hey, my name is so-and-so. Oh, you've got this going on, man. I'll pray for you. How can we help you? We want to be welcoming people. This is why our, our, our children's ministry matters so much or our uh, children's hunger fund where we take boxes of food to families that need food all around us. It's why our ministry in West Chicago, Puente del Pueblo, is such a big deal for us. Why we have so many people involved. We spend so much sunny money trying to make people's lives sunny. <laughs> that worked? That worked, didn't it? Not a lot of sun in Chicago right now. It's why GEMS, uh, our ministry to children and their families with special needs or caring for kids, a big deal. It's why we're so involved in missions as a church. Uh, why our um, support group ministry is, is a big deal. and uh, Why we love refugees. We want to be welcoming. We want to care. We want to be hospitable. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Greatness is not status, it's service. And our mission, and I'm talking about our church, is to redeem this concept every day of our lives. And notice Jesus tells us why, because at the end of verse 37, he says, when we honor, prefer, love, and serve others, we are honoring, preferring, and loving, and serving God, uh, Jesus. And you are never more like Jesus than when you serve. You never honor Jesus more than when you lay down your life for others. And whether you're starting your career or you're in the middle of a busy career, whether you're moving into retirement, I want you to understand none of that exempts you from this. Jesus says if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and a servant of all. So the question is, who are you wrapping your arms around? Who needs you? Whose life can you step into? 
Now let's keep moving in the next section that begins in verse 38 and goes, I think, through verse 42. Jesus again corrects the disciples. We're not going to look at this section, but Jesus says Christian community isn't closed. It was a problem for the disciples. They thought the 12 was this inner circle, this tight circle, and they built some walls. Jesus is saying Christian community isn't closed, it's open. So here he's talking about hospitality extended to strangers, to outsiders, and it demands humility. But I want to move on. Let's jump in at verse 43, and let's read this section that begins there. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now this is kind of a light section. <laughs> Now, I want you to note that according to Jesus, hell is both real and horrible. In hell, people are not annihilated. They suffer for eternity. The fire does not go out. The worm does not die. So we may be soft on hell. We may not want to believe in hell, we might find hell to be um, revolting. But not Jesus. And his point here is this is why we must take sin so seriously. Because left unchecked, it leads to hell. Now let's read verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt here uh, purifies so what Jesus seems to be saying, this is actually a hard verse in Mark, is that everyone will be purified with suffering. Salted with suffering. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, if it loses its purification... If you lose along the way or diminish your testimony, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now remember the passage, this section began with the disciples arguing. Here it concludes with Jesus saying, hey, stop arguing, be at peace. Live that kind of godly, holy life. Now go back to verse 43, where Jesus says, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, what is Jesus' point? What is Jesus reframing for the disciples here? Well, his point is this. Discipleship demands that we deal with sin. It demands that you deal with your sin. It it, it demands you be intolerant of sin. Now, not the sin of others, that's easy, but your own sin, that's much more difficult. And Jesus is saying... Discipleship demands, uh, as John Owen used to say, you kill sin or sin will kill you. 
that you live a life of killing sin when it rears its ugly head or that sin is going to kill you. Jesus is saying here nothing, not your hand, not your foot, not your eye is more important than the kingdom of God. With your relationship with Christ, with your walk with Christ, with your testimony, then your testimony. So when Jesus says cut it off, cut it off, pluck it out, he's not speaking literally He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, to make the point, take drastic action. Which we don't do enough. Jesus is saying, man, take drastic action uh, uh, relative to what you do with your hands, where you go with your feet, what you watch with your eyes. Because... You believe in the surpassing value of the kingdom. You believe nothing is more important than the kingdom. So anything that threatens your walk with Christ, now you fill in the blank. Alcohol, adultery, unbridled ambition isn't worth it. Cut it off, pluck it out. Now in light of these strong words, and these are strong words, I want to say three things about self-control, the importance of self-control. And and I'm borrowing from a book I really like called Addictions by Ed Welch. He's got a couple chapters in there on self-control that are worth the price of the book. So what I would suggest is you would give up your addiction, now follow me, to Starbucks for a week. Set aside a little money and get this book. Download it on your Kindle. First thing I want to say, point number one, is self-control, what is self-control? Self-control is doing what is right despite what you desire. Get that. It's doing what is right despite what you feel. Jesus is saying our problem is when our desires speak, we listen. When our hand says this or our foot says let's go here or our eye says let's see this, we say yes. And our Lord's point is don't. Self-control does what is right despite what your hand or your foot or your eye is telling you, despite what your desires want. Now look at this verse from Proverbs, great verse from Proverbs chapter 25. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man, is a woman, is a student, is a child who lacks self-control. Now, it's not your desires, but your lack of boundaries, your lack of self-control that defeats you, that makes you vulnerable to the enemy. Here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is echoing this proverb from chapter 25. And the only thing that will keep you from defeat Is building your walls, is living a life of self-control, is dying to sin, it's saying no. And so Jesus here is appealing to his followers to protect themselves from the idols that will enslave them. And so our Lord says, man, cut it off, pluck it out, cut it off, pluck it out. And the proverb says, build the walls. Build the walls. Same thing. Number two, 
Self-control is a battle, a lifelong battle. I love, love, love Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Look at it. For if you will live according to the sinful nature, you will die. And here's the hope. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And I want you to notice here, follower of Christ, that spiritual health is not the absence of misdeeds. That's impossible. That won't happen until heaven. Spiritual health is putting the misdeeds of the body to death. And I find that very encouraging in a, in a weird sort of way, I guess. And I want you to note that here Paul is speaking to Christians. And he reminds us that when we come to Christ, a miracle happens. God makes us alive in Christ. We are made righteous and we are forgiven and we are new creatures in Christ. And we are given the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And one of the gifts, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And God promises self-control to all his children. Now, yes, we still have a sinful nature. This misdeeds of the body will always be with us. And you shouldn't be surprised or discouraged when it rears its ugly head. But you, as a follower of Christ, are able to put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit. So there's hope. On the one hand, yes, we have these sinful desires. But on the other hand, these uh, deeds of the flesh can be put to death by the Spirit resident within us. We have a divine power for battle. It's the hope. Now think of it this way. Just as the Israelites in the Old Testament were promised the land. It's a gift. It's a promise. You've got it. The only way they took possession of the land was by one bloody daily battle after another. So we are promised self-control. It's made real by the presence of the Spirit. But we lay claim to it by one bloody battle after another. And that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus, if you will, please don't misunderstand me when I say this, is calling us to violence. Not violence towards others, no. But violence in the way we view and handle sin in our own lives. Cut it off, pluck it out. It's a battle we must fight. It's a gift, but it's a skill that develops with practice and discipline. Number three, in this battle, we've got to stay Jesus-centered, not battle-centered. We've got to stay Jesus-centered, not battle-centered. Now, look at another passage from Paul. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Let's get this up here. And Paul says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, all women, all children. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Now what I want you to note here is the relationship between saying no to worldly desires 
and the gospel. Note that relationship and God's grace. The gospel isn't just for non-Christians. Paul is saying the key to saying no is continually, daily living in the light of God's grace in Jesus Christ, your righteousness, your forgiveness. There are few verses actually in the New Testament that are more clear about the importance of living a gospel-centered, grace-centered, Jesus-centered life than this because it's grace that teaches us to say no. And that means we live in light of all the wonder of what Jesus has done. We think about the magnitude of our forgiveness. And how does that teach us to say no? Well, it empowers us. This grace empowers us through the Spirit within us. It enlightens us about our identity. I'm not like this anymore. Man, I've been redeemed. I've been freed in, in, in Jesus Christ to be holy. And it reveals how much God loves me. Jesus, you love me that much? Forgive me for doing that. You love me that much? You cannot obey Jesus' commands in Mark chapter 9 apart from living a life rooted in the grace Paul describes in Titus chapter 2. So we're grace-centered, we're gospel-centered, we're Jesus-centered. And if you're living in light of Jesus' love, really, Jesus, you love me that much? You won't sleep with your boyfriend. You, you won't live together. You won't cut yourself. You won't go where you shouldn't go. You won't hang with who you shouldn't hang with. You won't look at what you shouldn't look at because you're alive in grace. In grace. And Jesus is in the process of changing you. And you won't trample on his blood on the table and that brings us to the table now to communion no one loves you like Jesus and the table pictures for us what being a servant costs Jesus broken body shed blood and and it reminds us that Jesus Christ didn't die to merely make us nice. Jesus Christ died to make us holy. Holy. And as we take these elements, I want you to think about this. And I, I want to invite you to invite Jesus to come to you and to cleanse you. And some of you children are here because you've just taken the communion class and this is your first communion. We are so glad you are here. And, and some of you are here and you've never come to Christ and you really have a couple options. One is you can just let the elements pass or you can use this moment to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have sinned and I embrace you as my Savior and Lord because you died in my place for that sin. Let's come to Jesus because he's the one who gave his life for us.